Hey listeners, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts if you want access to new episodes a week early and ad-free. Cavalry Audio. I feel like I'm falling apart inside, little by little. Rodrigo Rosenberg wrote that in an email to a close friend on April 21st. 2009. Khalil Musa and his daughter Marjorie had been killed in a violent shooting seven days earlier. In the days after the Musa murders, friends and family couldn't help but notice that Rosenberg seemed particularly distraught. At that time, personal problems weighed heavy on Rosenberg, contributing to his distress. He had recently divorced his second wife, She had taken his two younger children to live in Mexico and was threatening to sue for full custody. Also, Rosenberg's mother had recently passed away after a prolonged illness. But it wasn't just that. In the days before his murder, Rosenberg seemed nervous, obsessive, even paranoid. His friends feared that he had become consumed by the investigation into the Musa murders. Rosenberg hadn't exactly kept it a secret. In fact, he told several people that he had stumbled onto something big, a sinister conspiracy behind the killings. By the end of April, Rosenberg believed he knew who had ordered the hit on Khalil Musa. But this discovery did nothing to excite him or vitalize his quest for justice. It just depressed him. Perhaps the sheer magnitude of the conspiracy he had uncovered made him feel helpless, impotent. He was trying to solve a murder in Guatemala, a country where murders almost never get solved, a place where justice is almost never served, a place where the truth is just as dangerous as a bullet. He was one man, going up against powerful, implacable forces. He felt like a kite, flapping helplessly in the whirling winds of a hurricane. In conversations with friends, Rosenberg expressed a kind of resignation. He seemed to accept the inevitability of his own death. He knew too much. He had uncovered too much. That's why they couldn't let him live. It was only a matter of time. The only question was whether he could reveal the truth to the world before they got to him. On May 5th, Rosenberg met with his mentor, Luis Mendizabal. He needed help. He showed Mendizabal calls he had received from an unknown phone number. Not only had the number been used to make threats on his life, whoever was making those threats seemed to be tracking his movements. According to Mendizabal, Rosenberg said that the second he entered his apartment, the unknown number would call his cell phone and then immediately hang up. Mendizabal begged his younger friend to flee the country immediately. Guatemala was no longer safe for him. The people who wanted him dead were too powerful to fight single-handed. Rosenberg agreed. 
He already had a safe house lined up in Washington, D.C. He would leave soon, but before he did, he needed help with something. The next day, May 6th, Rosenberg and a few of his closest friends gathered for dinner. He was in an elegiac mood. He thanked them for all their support during this difficult time and offhandedly mentioned that his life might be in danger. It felt like he was saying goodbye. Then, on Thursday, May 7th, Rosenberg did something worthy of John Le Carré. He decided to take out an insurance policy of sorts to document the results of his investigation for posterity and in case anything happened to him. And so, just three days before an assassin would riddle his body with bullets, Rodrigo Rosenberg sat down in front of a video camera, looked directly into the lens, and told the truth. Good afternoon. My name is Rodrigo Rosenberg Marzano. And unfortunately, if you are hearing or seeing this message, it means that I've been murdered by President Álvaro Colom. From Cavalry Audio and executive producer Oscar Isaac, I'm Edgar Castillo, and this is The Rosenberg Case. You're listening to Episode 2, The Video. Eduardo Rosenberg was following in his father's footsteps. He was set to graduate from a prestigious Guatemalan university with a degree in law and social sciences. Like his father, Eduardo was handsome and charismatic, a natural litigator and a born leader. And back in 2009, Eduardo was working in his father's law firm, learning the tricks of the trade at the master's feet. But in early May of that year, Eduardo was worried. He could tell something was troubling his father, especially when, on May 4th, Rosenberg took a leave of absence from his own law firm, putting a colleague in charge. Rosenberg told the office and his clients that he needed to attend to some personal issues. Eduardo wasn't sure what his dad was talking about. Was it the divorce? the custody battle? Eduardo's grandmother had recently passed away something that had broken his father's heart. Was that it? A few days later, on May 9th, Rosenberg invited his son on a day trip to Antigua, a small colonial town about half an hour away from the capital. It was a Saturday. The sky was overcast. The afternoon would probably see some rain. Before they left, Rosenberg seemed apprehensive, wondering aloud which car they should take. In Antigua, as father and son walked the cobblestone streets and did some shopping, Eduardo couldn't help but notice his father constantly looking over his shoulder, obsessed with the idea that someone was following him. Eduardo knew that his dad had been investigating the murder of a client, Khalil Musa. 
What had he discovered? Was he afraid that the same killers were now after him? After an uneventful, if slightly odd day together, Eduardo bade his father goodbye, not suspecting in the slightest that a Greek tragedy was about to befall his family. It was early the next morning, Sunday, May 10th, when Eduardo got the call. He still hadn't dressed for the day when his phone blared insistently. It was Luis Lopez calling, his father's driver and personal assistant. Sounding distressed, Lopez couldn't bring himself to say what had happened. He just told Eduardo to hurry to his father's apartment building, about a block away. Eduardo hung up, and his hands shaking, began to dress hurriedly. But he barely made it out the door before calling Lopez back and demanding to know what had happened. He asked the driver point blank if his father was dead. Yes, was the answer. His father had been shot, murdered. Cementerio Las Flores is a beautiful cemetery situated on the outskirts of Guatemala City. The low slopes of its trimmed green lawns are dotted by rose bushes and cypress trees. Winding walkways cut through burial fields where rows of marble gravestones are decorated with colorful bouquets of flowers. On Monday, May 11th, a large gathering of black-clad mourners gathered for the funeral of Rodrigo Rosenberg. Rain clouds amassed in the mineral sky overhead. It was a somber affair, the mood belied by the Santana song playing in the background. Rosenberg had long ago instructed his family to play one of his favorites, Blues for Salvador, whenever he had the misfortune of biting the bullet. Eduardo Rosenberg stood before his father's coffin and gave an earnest, somber eulogy. Everyone was impressed by his stoic demeanor in the face of the awful tragedy. Hundreds of mourners stood in silence as the coffin lowered into the grave, disappearing into the earth. After the ceremony was over, Luis Mendizaba, Rosenberg's friend and mentor, stood to address the funeral party. After a few words of encomium, he said, All of us here loved Rodrigo Rosenberg, and all of you are wondering why someone like Rodrigo, who never harmed anyone, was murdered. Well, Rodrigo left me with the answer. Mendizabal then held up a stack of 100 DVDs. He told the crowd that Rosenberg had recorded his final message to the world and instructed his mentor to release it if something happened to him. Mendizabal offered a DVD to anyone interested in watching the video. At this point, wanting to respect his murdered friend's wishes, Mendizabal had yet to watch it himself. Rosenberg had, however, kept him abreast of his investigation into the Musa murders, so Mendizabal had some idea of what the lawyer's final message would be. Among those who stood to take a copy of the DVD was Luis Alejos, President Colom's Minister of Communications, 
and one of Rosenberg's clients and closest friends. Luis Alejos also happened to be the younger cousin of Gustavo Alejos, the president's chief of staff and one of the most powerful men in the nation. Even before he watched the video, Luis Alejos had begun to hear whispers that whatever was on it was not good for the president. So while rushing back to the National Palace, he gave the chief of staff a call. I don't know what Luis told his cousin Gustavo on that call, but I imagine it was something about shit-hitting fans and where exactly they should stand. The last thing President Alvaro Colom needed was bad news. He was having a pretty rough year already. By May of 2009, he had been in power for about a year and a half. As Guatemala's first leftist president in over 50 years, Colom was under tremendous pressure to accomplish his ambitious agenda while working to reform one of the most corrupt governmental systems in the world. Suffice it to say, things weren't going that well. Colom had done little to combat the presence of Mexican drug traffickers in Guatemala. The number of murders rose 9% during his first year in office, along with the rate of impunity. 98% of all violent crimes went unprosecuted. Public bus drivers became targets for extortionists. 175 were murdered in 2008. Also, despite his campaign's emphasis on human rights, the country was mired in a femicide crisis, with hundreds of women being violently assaulted and killed. Rumors of conspiracies and coups swirled around the Colom administration constantly. The rumors turned real when dozens of hidden listening devices and cameras were discovered throughout his offices and residence in September of 2008. Colom had to fire his attorney general over that particular scandal. He had begun to see enemies everywhere. He felt besieged on all sides, and it was starting to show. He had lost weight. He seemed even more stooped and drawn than usual. So the very last thing President Colom needed was more bad news. But on May 11, 2009, that's exactly what he got. Just hours after Rosenberg's funeral, Colom was surprised to see his chief of staff barge into a meeting and pull him out unceremoniously. Gustavo Alejos looked worried as he quickly briefed the president on the odd thing that had just happened. Colom was confused. DVDs handed out at a funeral? A dead lawyer? What the hell was going on? Alejos rushed the president to a secure room and advised him to convene his closest advisors for a private viewing of this video. Alejos still didn't know what the video would show, but rumors were already starting to fly. As Luis Alejos hurried back with a copy of the DVD, a nervous Colón met the First Lady Sandra Colón and Vice President Rafael Espada, an avuncular former surgeon, in the secure room. Along with Gustavo Alejos and a few other aides, they all huddled around a computer 
as Luis Alejos slid the DVD into the disk drive and hit play. The first thing they saw was the face of a dead man. Rodrigo Rosenberg was sitting at a nondescript conference table, a plain manila folder at his right elbow. Wearing a dark blue business suit, Rosenberg faced the camera directly. His brown eyes gleamed lifelessly. Behind him, a royal blue curtain had been hung. At first, he spoke haltingly in clipped, nervous clauses. And the first thing he said must have chilled President Colomb to the bone. I'm going to play the first 50 seconds of the video. Good afternoon. My name is Rodrigo Rosenberg Marzano. And unfortunately, if you are hearing or seeing this message, it means that I've been murdered by President Álvaro Colom with the help of Gustavo Alejos. The reason I'm dead, and you're therefore watching this message, is only and exclusively because during my final moments, I acted as lawyer to Mr. Khalil Musa and his daughter, Marjorie Musa, who, in cowardly fashion, were assassinated by President Álvaro Colom with the explicit consent of his wife, Sandra de Colom, and with the help of Gregorio Valdez and Gustavo Alejos. For 18 minutes and 27 seconds, Rosenberg alleged a conspiracy to murder Khalil Musa, orchestrated at the uppermost levels of the Guatemalan government. It's kind of convoluted, so bear with me for a second here. Rosenberg claimed that the Rural Development Bank, or Ban Rural, with its $5 billion in assets, was a front for a vast money laundering and embezzlement scheme carried out by President Colón, his wife Sandra, Gustavo Alejos, and high-ranking members of the board of directors at the bank itself. Khalil Musa's position on the bank's board threatened to expose the scheme, and so that's why he had to be killed. His daughter Marjorie was just collateral damage. Rosenberg compared Bandural to a den of thieves, saying, We all know that's where all the projects of the president's wife are financed. Bogus fronts for her political campaign. That's where all the shell companies are financed, where they do all the money laundering managed by Gustavo Lejos and Gregorio Valdez. We're throwing a lot of names at you here, so let me do a quick recap. Rosenberg accused four people of being directly involved in the plot to kill Khalil Musa. President Colom and his wife Sander, the chief of staff, Gustavo Alejos, and a fourth guy, Gregorio Valdez. Who was Gregorio Valdez? We'll get to him in a later episode. For now, all you need to know is that he was very rich, very powerful, and very shady. There's something that we always hear, that, that if there's a conspiracy against the government, that it's just hypothetical. This has nothing to do with hypotheticals. This is real. It's all in the letters, the documents, the statements. As the video progressed, Rosenberg grew more animated, gesticulating, his face contorting with spite. 
his language got more virulent, especially when talking about the Musa murders. He frequently used words like thieves, assassins, scumbags, and cowards to describe the Coloms and their allies. It's pretty jarring to watch, especially knowing that Rosenberg had already been buried and mourned by the time the video surfaced. If I'm dead, if you're watching and listening to this message, it's because they already killed me. Towards the end of the video, Rosenberg put forth a startling call to arms. He asked the Guatemalan people to get behind Vice President Rafael Espada, whom he described as an honorable man. He addressed the vice president directly, urging him to, quote, seize the reins and publicly request that President Colom step down. Then, Rosenberg closed with a stirring plea. The only truth that matters is this. If you see and hear this message, it is because I was murdered by Álvaro Colom, Sandra de Colom, with the help of Gustavo Alejos, Gregorio Valdez, Fernando Pena, and the coward Gerardo de Leon. Guatemalans, we still have time. Please, we still have time. Good evening. The video ended, and in the president's office, silence reigned. No one knew what to say. They just stood there, open-mouthed, for a few interminable seconds. I don't think a laser could have cut through that tension. The overwhelming sentiment in the room was total disbelief. It just couldn't be real. It felt like they were in a scene from a movie, one of those Grisham thrillers from the 90s. Colom, in his lisping, soft voice, mumbled something about a plot to oust him from office. His wife Sandra, recovering her composure, began to fulminate against unseen enemies. No democratically elected leader wants to be accused of orchestrating a murder to cover up a money laundering scheme, credibly or not. The allegations were sensational, but could they be true? Well, this was Guatemala, after all. A country with a pretty long history of political violence and corruption. Coup d'etats, assassinations, criminal presidents, that kind of thing. So if the accusations Rosenberg made against President Colom were true, it wouldn't have been the first time that a Guatemalan president had engaged in that level of criminality. It wouldn't have been the second time either. In fact, just five years earlier, President Alfonso Portillo had fled the country after losing re-election because he had stolen millions of dollars from his own government. Besides, Rumors that the Coloms had engaged in fishy campaign financing had dogged the power couple for years. Most observers wrote it off as disinformation. But Rosenberg's video only served to raise suspicions once more. The truth was that nothing Rosenberg alleged was out of the realm of possibility. Maybe he wasn't a murderer, but it would have been a mild surprise had President Colom not been at least somewhat corrupt. The president and his inner circle knew at once that not only would the video spread quickly, but that many Guatemalans would likely believe what they heard. 
So, yeah, it was all pretty bad. But even at this point, they had no idea how bad it was going to get. Rosenberg's video was broadcast in its entirety on every major news network that night. And that same night, Monday, May 11th, at 10.29 p.m., El Periódico, Guatemala's leading independent newspaper, uploaded the complete video to its YouTube channel in three separate parts. It was a quiet move that few people noticed initially, but one that would change the trajectory of the entire Rosenberg affair. That was a clip from David After Dentist, one of the most viewed videos on YouTube in 2009, along with JK Wedding Entrance and Susan Boyle's Britain's Got Talent audition. That's the world we were living in back then. In 2009, YouTube was a rocket ship. The online video sharing platform was in the midst of exponential growth but it still wasn't anywhere near the behemoth it is now. In 2009, YouTube passed 100 million viewers for the first time. Now, it's almost 2 billion. In 2009, there were 20 hours of video content uploaded every minute. Now, it's over 500 hours. The point is, back in 2009, we still really had no idea what YouTube could be, and more specifically, what it could be used for. The same goes for Facebook and Twitter, two social media giants that back then were still walking around in diapers. We didn't really know just how powerful the algorithms driving these platforms could be and what kind of impact a single video could have what kind of damage it could do. The day after Rosenberg's funeral, by breakfast the next morning, the Rosenberg video had already been viewed hundreds of thousands of times. It went viral on both Twitter and Facebook. Servers crashed because of the traffic. It seemed like all of Guatemala was watching the video, talking about it, sharing it, compounding its dissemination across multiple platforms. At 1 p.m. on May 12th, a Twitter user named Jean-Anlou Fernandez, tweeting under the handle at Jeanfer, called for everyone to pull their money out of Bandural to protest Rosenberg's murder. His tweet read in translation, First real action, take money out of Bandural, break the bank of the corrupt. Fearing a run on the bank, the National Civil Police swiftly arrested Fernandez and charged him with, quote, intent to commit financial panic. A judge sentenced him to house arrest and ordered him to pay a fine in the amount of $6,500. The weird part was that Fernandez only had 212 followers at the time. Fueled by social media algorithms, anger over Rosenberg's murder was spreading like wildfire. By the afternoon of May 12th, 
thousands of protesters gathered in front of the National Palace in Guatemala City's central plaza. They were chanting, Asesino, murderer in Spanish. In just 48 hours, the killing of Rodrigo Rosenberg had gone from run-of-the-mill crime to bizarre regional story to full-blown international incident. At this point, I think we should take a step back and do a quick check-in. This is all manifestly insane, right? We've got a murdered lawyer who was murdered because he was investigating another murder, making crazy accusations from beyond the grave like some sort of Shakespearean ghost. I mean, what was Rosenberg trying to accomplish? Perhaps the answer to that question lies in one part of his message. But the time has come for things to change. The time has come for us to stand up to the thief, assassin, and coward that is our current president with all of his partners in crime. They're stealing from us. They are destroying this country, which is in the middle of the worst crime wave ever. And none of us Guatemalans, the ones who are affected by this violence, are doing anything about it. Remember that Rosenberg is making these accusations as Guatemala is in the midst of the worst crime wave in a generation. This was a country and a people who had grown tired of a culture of impunity for violent criminals and corrupt politicians. Rosenberg was trying to send his fellow countrymen a wake-up call. He was done waiting for someone else to do something. He was pleading with all of Guatemala to join him. And Guatemala would soon heed his call. Do you know what flop sweat is? Flop sweat is the sudden sheen of sweat you experience when confronted with an overwhelming fear of failure. The term has its origins in the theater, but I imagine politicians experience flop sweat a fair amount. That's how I picture President Colom on Tuesday, May 12th, just drenched in flop sweat as he struggled to deal with the fallout from the Rosenberg video. You couldn't really blame him for being nervous. Public opinion had turned against Colom literally overnight. The general sentiment among observers was that the Colom administration could not possibly conduct a fair and impartial investigation into Rosenberg's murder and the accusations he made. This feeling only heightened when eagle-eyed reporters caught Guatemala's attorney general exiting a secret meeting with the president. Otto Perez Molina, the arch-conservative ex-general whom Colom defeated for the presidency in 2007, took advantage of the blunder and accused Colom of conspiring to quash any legitimate investigation into Rosenberg's murder. Perez Molina, the man his supporters called Mano Dura, or Iron Fist, would loudly and frequently call for Colom's immediate resignation in the ensuing days and weeks. Remember his name, because it'll come up again. The president and his team were scrambling. Reporters were hounding the presidential palace nonstop, demanding an official response 
The administration knew it had to put out some kind of statement, but nobody really knew what to say or who should say it. Colom didn't want to empower or give further life to the allegations by addressing them personally. But when a brief statement rejecting the accusations, delivered by a spokesperson, did nothing to quell the Fuhrer, Colom decided to give a live interview on CNN and Español. The host began the interview by asking President Colom whether he had considered stepping aside temporarily while an investigation took place. Perhaps anticipating the question, Colom started off okay. There is no evidence. There is no proof of anything other than this video. We categorically reject the accusations that falsely accuse the president, first lady, and private secretary as those responsible for this assassination. Colom would go on to say that he believed that the video was part of a plot to destabilize his government, carried out by the same nefarious forces that had been waging smear campaigns against him from the outset of his administration. When pressed as to whether he believed that Rosenberg sacrificed himself, actually committing suicide, in order to undermine his administration, the president replied, Patricia, sincerely, I don't understand Mr. Rosenberg's motives. I don't understand. His family received every support when the murder of Mr. Musa to his, to everyone. And, um, Patricia, to be frank, there is something else going on here. I believe that Mr. Rosenberg is yet another victim of what we have been going through since I took power. While his performance wasn't super convincing, even his staunchest supporters were starting to lose faith. Colom was right about one thing. From the moment he won the presidency, there had been a sustained, organized, and targeted propaganda campaign waged against him by his political enemies. They called it La Campaña Negra, the Black Campaign. Was it possible that Rosenberg was a part of another such campaign? If so, who was behind it? Who was working with him? And by the way, who filmed the video? One of Colomb's fiercest critics, the man leading the charge against him, was a grenade-throwing, fire-breathing, right-wing journalist, producer, and radio host known as the Rush Limbaugh of Guatemala. His name was Mario David Garcia. Garcia, a short dude with a big black mustache, was born in 1946 and had been very active in Guatemalan politics for over 50 years. In 2009, he hosted a very popular radio show called Hablando Claro, roughly translated to Straight Talk. He used this platform to spread as many rumors, insults, and criticisms of the Colombs as he could. His avowed goal was to get Colom out of office as quickly as possible. And while he was kind of a buffoon and definitely a gas bag, Garcia was a man everyone took seriously. That's because he wasn't just a radio host. Back in the 80s, 
Garcia was rumored to have participated in two failed coup attempts against the Guatemalan president at the time. And supposedly, Garcia had also been involved in the 1998 murder of Juan José Gerardi, a Roman Catholic bishop and advocate of indigenous rights in Guatemala. So, given Garcia's clear animosity towards the Colón administration, as well as the rumors of his sordid history in Guatemalan politics, you can't really fault the president for seeing the intricate web of a right-wing conspiracy. Especially because, on May 12th, Mario David Garcia started his radio program by admitting that he was the one who had filmed the Rosenberg video. Quien hizo la grabación de Rodrigo Rosenberg fui yo en mi oficina el jueves de la semana pasada. Garcia claimed that Rodrigo Rosenberg was scheduled to appear on Straight Talk to publicize his accusations the day after his murder. Unfortunately, according to Garcia, the president's assassins had gotten to him first. But, as if predicting his own demise, Rosenberg approached Garcia for help in making the video a few days earlier on May 7th. The table Rosenberg sat at, with that blue curtain draped behind him, that was shot in Garcia's office. But the part that really spooked the president and his team was the revelation that Garcia didn't act alone. He was working with another man, an old ally, an unassuming man with coiffed white hair and a well-groomed white mustache. A man long known as one of Guatemala's most notorious spies. A man who was also rumored to have participated in assassinations and attempted coups back during the dirty wars of the 80s and 90s. This man introduced Rosenberg to Garcia, setting up the recording of the video. This was the same man who helped locate the body of Rosenberg's older brother, Bobby, after he had been kidnapped and murdered. The same man who Rosenberg entrusted to hand out DVDs of the video at his funeral. I'm talking about Rosenberg's longtime friend and mentor, Luis Mendizaba. That's next time on The Rosenberg Case. If you don't want to wait to find out what happens next on The Rosenberg Case, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus only on the Apple Podcast app to get next week's episode right now ad-free. Trust me, you won't want to miss it.